Welcome to the Antioch Community Church Podcast. We are a church located in the downtown Birmingham area where we desire to be with and like Jesus and help others do the same for the glory of God. We hope today's message encourages and challenges you. So uh, my wife, Allie, her sister, uh, Amy, definitely wins the competition between her and her siblings for coolest place to live. Um, We live here in Alabama, which is if you go anywhere in the world and you tell anyone that you're from Alabama, regardless if they've heard of Alabama or not, they will laugh out loud when you say, and they'll say Alabama, you know, or whatever their, whatever their, uh, you know, accent is. And they, they, anywhere I've gone, doesn't matter. They always laugh. And her brother, you know, he lives, sorry, Ryan, and if you're watching this, which I know you're not. You live right next door to mom, but it's like in California, so that's like, you know, kind of, you know, cool. But so her sister lives in Sydney, Australia, which, you know, just takes the cake, right? I mean, it's just amazing, beautiful, big city on the water, all the stuff. And But the thing that I didn't know about Sydney, Australia until uh, she and her husband and their kids were living there and was, well, it happened a couple times. We were like on the phone with them or FaceTime. And we just hear one of the kids, one of my uh, nieces and nephews, just start screaming. And the Amy or her husband, Chase, is like, oh, yeah, it's just another huntsman. And I don't know if you guys know what huntsmen are. They are these terrifying, massive spiders that come into the house when it rains. It's like I can deal with cockroaches, but massive spiders. And here's the thing. They are known for their speed and for biting humans. So they're like little animals that just, they come in and they, they freak Aussies out. They're all, like, they can't get rid of them. This is like a problem all over Australia. And um, every time that, you know, that happens, I'm always like, man, I just thank God that I don't, that I live in America, you know, where all we have is cockroaches, you know. Um, but, you know, it's, I think we kind of, you know, in America, even if you're not from America, but you, if you, you're living here, uh, I think we can kind of think about persecution that way, where it's like this scary thing that happens on the other side of the world, um, but just is over there. And that's, that is certainly the case. I mean, no doubt about it. Um, Open Doors uh, has done a lot of research and studies to kind of just have a pulse on the persecuted church. And um, 360 million of our brothers and sisters around the world are living in countries where uh, the threat of persecution is extremely high. So no doubt about it, right? There are places in the world where huntsmen, spiders exist, and they can come into your house. Um, it, when you break it down to the number of, in, in 2021, the number of Christians that were killed for their faith across the world, it, it comes out to be one every 90 minutes. So just even in the time that we'll be here, two people somewhere in the world will lose their life because of their faith in Jesus. And then we can look at ourselves here in America and say, well, there's freedom of religion and, you know, there's some semblance of, you know, Christian, you know, debatable degree of which Christian roots and that kind of thing. So this is a different space. And definitely, right, we might not have huntsmen, spiders, but we still have spiders, 
you still have spiders that can get into your house. And it may not be near the level at which our brothers and sisters around the world today, you know, many of them have to gather in small groups underground in places that are hidden and, you know, and we're able to do this freely. It's, it's not, I'm not saying that it's the same, but I think we can so discredit any semblance of persecution that we actually end up um, saying that one of the things that Jesus promised was a lie. He actually promised that they, you will be persecuted. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So this is a promise. If you claim the name of Jesus, you will be persecuted. And, you know, as we looked at, or as Alex Lowry looked at with us last week, the beatitude right before this, if you were here, this might sound somewhat familiar. Like, didn't we talk about persecution already? And the answer is yes. Jesus actually doubles down on persecution in the Beatitudes. He's getting to the height of it, and this is the only one that he repeats. Every other one is just that one, and he repeats this one. And then he actually he, he ups the ante a little bit, too. If you look in verse 11, um, every other Beatitude before this is kind of a little bit, I don't know, abstract. Where it's like, blessed are those. Blessed are the ones who... And it's a little bit like, well, that may or may not be me. And then he just comes right down um, to our doorstep, to your doorstep, verse 11, blessed are you, and gets extremely personal with this. And, you know, the only, the, the most repeated word throughout the Beatitudes is surprise, surprise, but blessed, starts every single one with this blessed, but the word right after that that's repeated the most is persecuted. It's used three times. The only other word that's repeated is the word heaven, and that's only twice. So Jesus, in, in giving his, his picture um, as the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything, he might just have the best picture of the good life. And in giving that picture of the good life, he ends up putting a, a huge focus on how you as a follower of Jesus will be perceived by the world and how then to respond to that, which is kind of what Jesus builds on in this last beatitude as opposed to what we looked at last week in verse 10, where he simply said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now he begins to build on that and says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So what I want to do is, um, you know, I want to, Jesus kind of gives us three angles on persecution that I think help you and I as uh, followers of Christ in a country where religious freedom is protected, um, what, you know, opposition can look like, and why, even if you still aren't convinced that persecution is a thing in the West or in America, even if you consciously are thinking that, that you subconsciously are doing everything you can to avoid any sense of persecution or resistance from the world. So um, the first thing that Jesus says here with building on this idea of persecution in verse 11, he says, blessed are you when others revile you. When others revile you. When was the last time that you used the word revile? When you were talking with someone or texting with them. Um, I don't know if there is an emoji for reviling or not. 
Uh, maybe there is. I don't know. Um, reviling. It's the, the idea is, blessed are you when others mock you, insult you, disgrace you. Uh, it's the same word used of the two robbers that were crucified with Jesus when he was on the cross as they were there being crucified with him, and then they were looking down on him, and it said they reviled him. This is, you know, this is a somewhat silly example, but I want to share it because I think it's, it kind of helps us see, okay, well, maybe there are ways that you've been wounded through some sort of persecution that's a maybe lowercase p, not a capital P, but it's still, it's still there, and I don't think we should discredit it. Um, when I was in uh, college, uh, the week before uh, I was going to get engaged to Allie, I was talking with one of, uh, one of the guys that lived near me, and you know, I said something like, yeah, I'm getting engaged this weekend, and he was like, why would you want to get married so young? And without getting into the whole like, Christian sexual ethic thing, um, you know, I, was like, I was like, well, like, she's, she's amazing, she's beautiful, and like, just, she's great, and she loves the Lord. And he just like, kind of like snickered a little bit and laughed, and I was like, what was funny about that? And then he kind of just like shook his head and kind of grinned. He was like, just kind of scoffed, like, loves the Lord. And I was like, I didn't really know what to say. And then I realized he was making fun of me for the fact that I valued that one of the things that I loved about her was that she loved Jesus. And every time that I saw him, you know, I mean, again, this is, it's silly, right? But I mention it to maybe kind of open up just, yeah, there, there's, even if it's lowercase, O, opposition, lowercase p, persecution. There's some resistance that you can feel. And every time I saw him after that, he always just laughed at me and just said, she loves the Lord. And it was like, I mean, yeah, she does. And, but I don't know why that's, you know, a thing, but it just is. There, there's a, uh, you know, there, there's just, Jesus is really clear that um, when, if, if you're not of him, there's a, there's a spirit of resistance to him because he's threatening um, and that's, that's one significant reason why, I mean, if you think about, like, why are Christians even persecuted in the first place? Why do people hate Jesus in the first place? He's a God of love, and he healed people, and he did all these amazing things, but he's also threatening the very foundations of what our normal, natural selves, our flesh, would say, which is, I can be my own God and call my own shots and do whatever I want to do. And Jesus, though, with mercy and grace, he challenges that. And so there's essentially two irreconcilable value systems in the world. And you and I may not recognize that as followers of Jesus, but people all around the world see that, that we're saying that Jesus is king. He's the one that has our allegiance, and that allegiance is ultimate. And so that means that we then don't bow to red or blue, the left or the right, or whatever, uh, you know, whatever country, anything. Blessed are you when others revile you and you suffer for Jesus. Then he also says, blessed are you when others persecute you. Now, this is, you know, automatically, when I think of persecution, I think of the most dramatic thing possible, right? Someone who is, you know, being beaten and murdered because they follow Jesus and they won't turn back on him. 
And again, that is, that is certainly persecution, but that's kind of persecution up, you know, turned up to 11, all the way up on this side. The, the word uh, persecution, it simply means to aggressively chase or to pursue. And, you know, I think, or, or this is, again, it's kind of like older language, but that's always one of the things we're looking at, the, the idea of putting to flight. Basically, wanting to get Christians out. And on the extreme, that means killing them. But that can also just mean getting them out. I mean, it could be like a smaller, you know, um, you know, on this side, it's what I envision is like, you know, a cheetah running after an antelope in the African bush, just hunting it down. But I think it can also look like just tear gas. I mean, it's not going to kill you, but it's going to scare you. It's going to make your eyes water, and it's going to make you want to scurry off and get out of there. And that's what persecution is meant to do. It's meant to push out, which is why a natural response to uh, any kind of persecution, whether it's extremely violent or just, you know, kind of just social, being socially disgraced or kind of kept out of a certain group or even at work, if there's some kind of dynamics going on there between a boss or with a team because of your faith in Jesus. I mean, I saw one study that just flat out said that oftentimes in a lot of universities, if deans or hiring professors, whatever, they find out that someone's in a evangelical or professing faith in Jesus, they will, it's much less likely that they'll get hired. Blessed are you when others persecute you and you suffer for Jesus. The third kind of angle that, that Jesus puts on this is blessed are you when others utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So this one just, you know, that one just hurts because the reviling thing is like taking something that's true and weaponizing it against you. But this one is making up things. This is something that was actually really common in early Christianity in the, the Roman um, society as Christianity was increasing in number and in prevalence. Um, a lot of the uh, Roman citizens and leaders, this was one of their main uh, points of, of, of opposition to early Christianity was just lying, basically. Just telling lies about who Christians were and what they were claiming to, they just said they would take aspects of this kind of new burgeoning, you know, religion that was coming up, and they would take things and take it out and then kind of twist it. So they would say things like, you know, they're, they're atheists. They're actually very anti-God because they don't bow to our gods, which were the Roman gods. And so they kind of cast this negative religious light on them. Or they would say things like, you know, they're, they're guilty of uh, committing incest because they, they're marrying their brothers and sisters because there was such a family that was one of the hallmarks of early Christianity and, and to this day, a sense of family of brothers and sisters. And so they would take that and begin to kind of throw in these lies about who Christians were. And then, you know, even to the point of calling Christians cannibals because they would eat the flesh of Christ and drink blood. And so they would take, not again, not literally, but they would take that and they would start to spread these lies. 
And um, the same thing can happen to you and I. And that's one of the things that can be one of the most frustrating things when just slander in general, right, or gossip, but specifically um, on account of Christ. And so you look at, I look at all that, and then when Jesus gets to verse 12 and he says how you should respond to all that, it's a little bit off tune, it feels like. When Jesus says all this, blessed are you when others persecute you, mock you, uh, push you out sometimes through even violence or killing you, slander you, Here's your response. Rejoice and be glad. Like, well, again, if you're talking about you're starting a religion or you're starting some kind of thing and you're putting out your bylaws of what the good life is, this is not very attractive. Everything Jesus is saying, and now it's just really bad. And now he's saying, rejoice and be glad that people are going to hate you. People are going to want to push you out, to chase you down like cheetahs. Rejoice and be glad. I mean, I don't know if you, when I read that, and as I've been reading it, that's hard to reconcile with. Because on one hand, you want to say, okay, well, yeah, like, in that moment, I would have the power of the Holy Spirit to rejoice and be glad. And, and I mean, literally, this word rejoice uh, means to Feel God's favor, to delight in his favor. And the word be glad literally means to jump for joy, to have some kind of persecution come and to start getting so excited you start jumping up and down. How can you do that? I mean, are you supposed to just grin and bear it or... Are you supposed to act like you really do like it and that it's just a spiritual thing to do? Or is there maybe something that we're missing in suffering for Jesus? That there's actually something in it that is good and that there actually is something in it that he can redeem because that's what he does. The very end of the first book of the Bible uh, Genesis, we see basically the whole point of the book of Genesis is that he takes what is meant for evil and he uses it for good. I want to kind of explain, uh, I want to explain it like this. Uh, earlier this summer, Allie and I and the kids, we took one of our, uh, I don't know, semi-annual pilgrimages to Ikea in Atlanta to go get some cheap but nice difficult to put together furniture. And so we went there, but, you know, because we have, you know, three kids, at the time, three, three under three, you know, we've got, we've got like four strollers, and we've got like carts full of stuff before we even get in, and so you can't go up the escalator, you have to go up the elevator. And so to get up to the maze, you know, where you go around and you see everything. And so we go over to the elevator, and the door's about to close, and the people in there, like, like nicely, you know, stopped it so we could it would open so we could get in. And so we get in, they push the button to go to floor two right above us. And it goes up for maybe about five seconds and then it stops. And I'm like, that was fast. Cause I know like when you walk in, you can see it's like, it's, it's pretty high. The second floor is pretty high up there. I'm like, there's no way that we went 
all the way up there that fast. And then the door doesn't open for about 15 seconds. And we're like, there are three kids, three and under, in this elevator right now. And we realize after about 30 seconds, this, we are stuck. We are trapped in this elevator. So it was three complete strangers that we didn't know, Allie and I, and three kids. And like the first thing I said to them was like trying to like, you know, break the ice up. It was like, I bet you wish you wouldn't have held the door for us, right? You know, <laughs> it's one thing to get stuck in an elevator. It's another thing to get stuck with kids that at any moment could just completely fall apart, you know? And then it doesn't make it any better that like, like, I forget which one, Quinn or Rowan, like, knocked over this bottle of water that we had for Juju's, uh, uh, for her formula. And so we're like, if we're stuck in here, I mean, she's going to starve. You know, she's not going to eat. And um, so obviously we start pushing the little alarm button. And, you know, it's like, it was, I think there was two buttons. There was, there was, like, the alarm was just, like, making this loud ringing noise. And then there's the other one. It's like you can call for help. And so we're doing both. And then the call for help one is just, like, ringing like a phone, ringing like a phone. And then after like three minutes, it just stops and says like, no one is available on the other line. And I'm like, okay, that's not how this is supposed to work, all right? And so we just keep ringing the alarm and then we keep making the call. And so we did that for about at least 15, maybe not 20 minutes. And then we finally realized, well, okay, well, this obviously is not working, so we should probably just, I don't know, maybe try and call. And so nobody had service except for me. I had one bar in the elevator. And so I was able to call 911, and the firemen came about 10, 15 minutes after that. So we were in there for about 30 minutes total with these complete strangers and three children, which they held it together really well. And the whole time, we're like, it was like calm tense, where it was like, we knew if anybody started showing any signs of anxiety, it was just going to be like a slippery slope with the kids, and it was just going to be like, if we're stuck in here for five hours, like, we're going to die, you know. And so the, the firefighters get there, and they lower us down, you know, what, a foot and a half or whatever, and then they're able to open the door, and then we get out, and on the way out, like, we just are, like, happy to get out, and so we say bye to these people, and then we talk to the manager, and like, can we get a discount? And they're like, sure. And so, and all $50, which basically paid for the kids to get a toy for being good. Um, and then we went up and, you know, we took the escalator, which we should have taken, and we'll never take the elevator there again. Took it up to the, the main maze floor, and we're up there. And then maybe 10, 15 minutes later, we, we see from afar those three people. And they were made from here to the back row. And we made eye contact. And we just, we just smiled at each other. And there was just this connection that we had. I actually don't, we never got their names. Didn't even know their names. And yet, these people, they felt connected to us and we felt connected to them, honestly, after having been in an elevator for 30 minutes with these complete strangers, I kind of felt a little bit, and I don't even know their names, a little bit more connected to them than some people that I've known for years. Because as psychologists have come to realize through studies is that going through pain together is like social glue. It's why, like, you know, military, these guys get so close, or even on a, you know, sports team, um, that kind of thing. You, you suffer together, you, you, you sweat together, you bleed together, and it brings you together so much more than just, 
I don't know, the other 4,000 people that were in there getting fake fig leaf plants with us, you know? There's some kind of, you know, connection that happens there, this bonding together. And I think that that is at the heart of all suffering in the life of a Christian, but, but particularly suffering on Jesus' account. Jesus goes on to say, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Now, he doesn't give us anything else other than that. And quite frankly, this whole reward talk in the New Testament is pretty vague. We don't really know exactly what he's talking about. Our inheritance and, and Christ, we don't really know. But what we do know for sure is that it is not going to be anything less than Christ himself. And, and I think with what this, along with um, what Hebrews uh, 13 says as well about this idea of sharing in the sufferings of Christ, is that you never just suffer for Jesus. You always suffer with Jesus. Because he himself was acquainted with grief. He, was, he had his body broken. He was perfect. He didn't have to take on, you know, you didn't choose to be alive. No, you just happened, you know. He chose to come into this, and he knew what he was getting into. And then he didn't give up on it, even in the very end, when he was, you know, sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, just brutal honesty, almost unbiblical, saying, if there's any other way to not let the cross happen, don't let it happen. But then he says, not your will, but mine be done. Or not, not my will, but your be done. They were both, they're both God, so it's the same. The Father, your will be done. And then he did. He, he went to the cross, and he went all the way through with it, through the beating and through um, hanging, not, not even the, the physical part, but the, the relational part with his father of, of being abandoned by him. And then ultimately submitting all the way to the point of death and being buried in the ground. We never only suffer for Jesus. We always suffer with him. There is a bonding that happens with Christ when you suffer in his account. That small, silly, dumb, and I would be embarrassed to share with any Christian in another country who seriously, you know, is in threat of real persecution. But that guy in college who made fun of me for, you know, saying, my, I, love, I want to marry this girl because she loved the Lord. That little sense of, like, I was getting pushed, okay, I, I felt pushed out of the world. His world. The world. But I, was, I felt united to Jesus. There, there was a sort of, again, camaraderie and connection with Jesus that you can only have that, you know, that we could only have with those three random strangers if we'd gotten stuck in an elevator with them for 30 minutes. And so I think, you know, whenever you are suffering, and I think, again, it applies to just all suffering, period. Because Jesus, he, he takes all suffering and in a way redeems it. But specifically suffering on his behalf, um, on his account, you know, I, I think there's, there's something there in which it's almost like he's saying, like, I want, I want to spend some time on the elevator with you. You know, I want, I want you to come onto the elevator with me. And nobody, want, nobody 
it's not something you should actively seek after. You shouldn't go actively seeking after half-working elevators. Right? You shouldn't go actively knocking on persecution's door, but if and when it comes, more likely when, even if it's small, when it comes, you know, it should be welcomed. I mean, it's okay to feel fear because the disciples in the early church in Acts 5, persecution started happening and they were praying for boldness because they were afraid and because they were, you know, they were, I don't know, who knows, maybe starting to feel ashamed and maybe wanting to step back from Jesus. And so they prayed for boldness. Um, but it's like Jesus is wanting to spend a little time on the elevator with you. I want to give you um, a couple of just kind of practical implications for this. So he says, rejoice and be glad. And, and maybe now you can kind of see what there is to rejoice and to jump for joy in. That you're getting to know the lover of your soul in a way that outside of suffering you could never know. One is when Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. You know, you can look at that and say, well, heaven, that's like, what about now, you know? And I think it's both. But he's saying there's, there's a, a, de a degree to which if you are only thinking on this horizon, then this life is going to be really disappointing and there's going to be a lot of pressure to get a lot of things out of life here. But he says, graze your reward in heaven. And as we know in Revelation, that heaven is not just a place up in the sky, but it's where God rules and reigns and he's working actively to bring that down and Jesus brought that, he brought the future into the present and now that's getting worked out and one day it will be fully realized, heaven and earth the same, that that is, you know, as First Peter talks about um, and Hebrews as well, that, you know, we have a city that's not here. You know, I'm living for a city that's not here and so it's okay if I'm rejected and reviled and persecuted. So, you know, look up. Um, but also look around, too. Um, he says, rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, you're not, you're not the first, and you won't be the last person to suffer for the God of the Bible, for Jesus. There were some pretty amazing people in the Old Testament that stand in line before us and there are brothers and sisters all around the world right now that stand along with us too. And people after us. And then a very practical thing, um, this comes from Matthew 5, 44, when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think prayer should be a big part of this whole persecution thing. Praying for people. I mean, just think about, you know, anyone that you feel slightly ashamed to be a, your full Jesus follower itself around. That might qualify as an enemy. That might qualify as a persecutor. Maybe not. But someone who makes you feel like, if I say, if I said what I would say normally or what I really want to say or act 
in a way that maybe I even feel a little bit vulnerable about, but I know is really what Jesus wants for me, and I know is really what he has put in my heart, but I feel kind of pushed down. Pray for that person. That's Jesus' response to enemies and persecutors, is pray for them. But then I also think what, you know, to circle back to the fact that, you know, there aren't huntsmen's spiders here, but there are still spiders. Well, there are people who live in homes across the world where huntsmen's spiders come in when it rains. There are, we have brothers and sisters around the world today, and this is, you know, never going to fully change because Jesus made that promise. You know, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. It's not personal. They don't hate you. They hate Jesus. But you, he's in you, and you align with him, so they hate you. Um, that we should pray for them. So, you know, get educated. Um, opendoorsusa.org is a good place to start. Just kind of tracking and tracing the persecuted church all around the world and what, how bad it is in certain places and what the stats are and even specific ways to pray for people. But then also, as I mentioned just a moment ago, it's, it's okay to pray for yourself too. If you're feeling, even if you've never, even if you're like, look, I've, I know for sure I've never been persecuted in any way, shape, or form. But there's still fear of what other people would think of you if you did do something more public for Jesus. Or if you, there's some shame that's there. It's okay to pray, like Acts 5, for boldness. And you know what? God answered that prayer for them. Because it said that the house was shaken and they kept preaching and proclaiming Jesus. And the rest of Acts happened. And now we're here. So they didn't stop, they weren't able to stop it then when it was, you know, smaller. So pray for boldness. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you have, are, or will in the future experience any kind of suffering on the account of Jesus, maybe it's because he's wanting to spend some elevator time with you. We are so glad you joined us today. If you would like to stay connected with us, visit our website at antiochbhm.com where you can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. If you have any questions about today's message, or would like to speak with someone about what was shared today, please email us at info at Go in peace.